Welcome to another episode of Life Excellence with Brian Bartis. Join me as I talk with amazing athletes, entrepreneurs, authors, entertainers, and others who have achieved excellence in their chosen field, so you can learn their tools, techniques, and strategies for improving performance and achieving greater success. Veronica Scott is the founder and CEO of The Empowerment Plan, what started as a college project designing a coat that transforms into a sleeping bag for the homeless, has evolved into a movement that empowers homeless individuals to gain back their independence and have their dignity restored. Veronica is the youngest recipient of the John F. Kennedy New Frontier Award from the JFK Library Foundation and Harvard University. She has also received an IDEA Gold Award from the Industrial Design Society of America and the People's Voice Award from Diane von Furstenberg. Veronica is one of Forbes 30 Under 30 and has been named one of CNN's 10 Visionary Women. The Empowerment Plan story has been told around the world and shared at events such as the World Summit on Innovation and Entrepreneurship and the Forbes 400 Philanthropy Summit. Welcome, Veronica, and thanks for joining us on Life Excellence. Thanks for having me. Veronica, your educational background is in industrial design, and you attended one of the top-ranked private art schools in the country, College for Creative Studies here in Detroit. Graduates of CCS go on to work in product design, transportation design, the apparel industry, visual arts, advertising firms, and the like. And you were headed down one of those paths, too, and then your plans changed. Mm -hmm. What did you think you were going to do after college? And tell us about the project that caused you to change course. So it's a good question. I definitely thought I was, you know, that's why I signed up for CCS. And that's also why I signed up for industrial design, because while I enjoyed doing creative things, painting, drawing, all of that, uh, this was a way to not be the starving artist in my mind. You know, I wanted to be able to make a living and take care of myself, but also my family. And I did that because both of my parents struggled with unemployment and addiction and that constant instability of poverty and not kind of knowing where you're going to be next. And so the reason why I studied industrial design was like, okay, well, I can marry business and art. And these are the things that I, I didn't know enough about it, but I was excited about the potential there and going into CCS and designing, you know, shoes and cell phones and, you know, appliances. It was an amazing experience. And so I thought when I was at CCS that that's really what I was going to do, that that was the pathway. I was going to go work in New York. I was going to work for a design firm and work at Smart or IDEO or one of the amazing uh, places out there. And it was wild to me that when I think it was about 2008, 2009, we got the class project that was around designing to fill a need in your community. And it was sponsored by a design team that was just touring the U.S. in an Airstream, trying to get designers and creatives to think about some of the world's biggest challenges. And who knew I, you know, I'd fall in love with something that had nothing to do with making money and making commercial products, but making a difference. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the project, specifically what that ended up being for you? Yeah, for, for me personally, it ended up being about 
kind of homelessness and being displaced in Detroit. So my family's from Detroit. I'm from Detroit. Um, spent most of my life there and, and generations of my family. And I think a lot of people, and specifically when I was doing research for this class project around needs in Detroit, and in 2008, that was quite a lot of needs. Um, there was a lot going on in the world. The global economy had collapsed. And also at the same time, Detroit was about to go through bankruptcy. So there was a lot of things that Detroit was struggling with. And like when you talk to somebody, when you talk to a student at Cast Tech or you talk to another college student or you talk to somebody that drove into work every day in Detroit, uh, they would always talk about the person that they saw on their way to work or their way to school that was out in the worst weather. And they wanted to do something to help this person that was displaced, that was homeless, but they had no idea what to do. And they felt kind of trapped. Um, and so that was the premise. The thing that I kind of focused in on was like, okay, so if this is something that a lot of people seem to struggle with, and since then realize it's not just a Detroit thing, that is a global thing that people struggle with. How, how do I start doing that? And so I spent uh, initially, I just like Googled shelters across the city. And I spent a lot of time at NSO, Neighborhood Service Organization, actually three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights uh, at 8 p.m. for about five months um, doing research on if there was a product to meet that need, if there was a way to answer what does that individual really need in that moment, uh, what can we give somebody that would help them? And so that was the initial, the initial premise of the project for me. And so what happened after that? You had this idea, the basis for the project was something that made a difference in the community. You knew that you wanted to do something around the homeless population. And so you go into this shelter and how did it get from that idea? So this general idea that you wanted to do something to help to designing first and then manufacturing. Uh, so it was interesting, like in the beginning you know, it was just, it was spending time there and spending time at this one warming center. And there was about 50 to hundred people there on a given night, uh, pretty full every night. Um, and there were hundreds of people waiting for a room, like not even a room, a, an opportunity, uh, to be able to sit and stay warm in this warming center in winter. Uh, so for every one chair that they had, there were multiple people waiting for it on the other side, waiting for the shift to change, hoping to get a slot to stay, to stay alive in some of this cold, this or some of Michigan's worst winter weather. And so initially what inspired the coat uh, was actually a playground across the street from the shelter. There was a playground that was covered in tarps and clothes and two people were living inside of it. And it's 20 feet away from this warming center. And I remember walking by, making note of it, talking to a lot of people, spending a lot of time, and then coming back a week later and this, this kind of makeshift shelter had been torn apart and burned to the ground in a turf war, basically. So what ended up happening is those two people narrowly made it through that incident only to pass away uh, shortly after, after just having been out in the elements for so long. So they had been 
out on the streets, I think over 15 years is what I found out. And so what struck me was why would you build something for yourself when somebody is trying to give it to you for free 20 feet away? It's not as if you don't have access. It's not as if you don't know it's there. Um, it's right, it's right there. Um, and you end up paying the ultimate price to do it. And so for me, that was the thing that inspired the code itself was how, how can we address that? And what I realized after spending so much time in a, in a shelter and in this warming center and through my own experience growing up was just watching how people treated others in this warming center, especially volunteers, uh, individuals, even that work there or people that were just popping in for a moment, they treated individuals there as if they had done something horribly wrong, as if they were dangerous, as if they were something to be afraid of, uh, or not even like really human as if they were less than human. And so you realize that, you know, people want to be able to take care of themselves. They want to be able to, you know, build a place for themselves. And that's what that couple was doing across the street. Because can you imagine living your life where you are told every second of every day where you can sleep, where you can sit, what you can eat, when you can do this? It's it's very hard. And so really giving people that sense of independence back and how do we give people that autonomy, independence, and hopefully confidence and encouragement. So the coat was like my initial trying to grasp that. It's very hard to like figure that out as a product designer. I was like, I don't know if a product is the right answer, but it's the start and one, I got to pass this class. And two, I want to actually be able to help some of the people I've met here. And I've been talking with this same group over and over again for months. So can I design something that will hopefully help them if they cannot get into a shelter, if they are one stuck waiting for hours, uh, or if they don't want to, or don't have any other place, what can hopefully help them in that moment? And so that's where the sleeping bag coat part of, you know, empowerment plan now started. It was just how to address that immediate need and hopefully protect people from frostbite being one of the biggest things, actually. It's amazing to me that as a college student, and you were obviously much more mature than I was as a college student, and, and maybe we'll get into some of those differences, but to have the foresight and the thinking and and also just to, to step into that environment, I think, takes courage. And it's just so interesting to me that with your design background and, and your artistic and creative background, that you were able to find this solution again, through observation, through conversation, did the light bulb just go off at some point that, uh, aha, this like a, a coat that turns into a sleeping bag? Or did that come through ongoing dialogue? You mentioned that you were at the shelter um, quite, several yeah. times a week for quite a while. How did the product idea come about? Definitely ongoing dialogue for sure. Um, but the initial one you know, it didn't start like the, the first iteration was really rough. Let's just say that. So it was, it was one seeing people kind of walking around the neighborhood and spending time there. And I only lived a few blocks away. So it wasn't as if this was a whole different area. Um, it was at the end of the cast corridor. So I spent time 
just like kind of walking around with a couple of people I had gotten to know, and they were showing me places to like meet people and talk to people that were displaced and didn't have an opportunity in this warming center. And you'd see people with kind of like hand-me-downs of hand-me-downs, coats that were, I met a guy whose like coat was like rotting off of him and he had a bungee cord holding multiple coats together. So that was the initial concept was like, okay, well, here's the, like, there needs to be a better, warmer winter coat, step one. Then we saw a lot of people that had frostbite. So a lot of people would lose like toes and fingers uh, come January, February. Uh, it was really devastating to see people, um, you know, that like it, it just was very hard. And so how can we protect protect all of that if you cannot get into a shelter, if you cannot get a bed, what can we do to hopefully protect a little bit more? Um, and then, so that was where I was trying to cover up feet, trying to cover up the rest of the body. How do we keep somebody warm? Um, initially I wanted it to be a coat tent thing. The tent part never panned out. Uh, it immediately collapsed, uh, when I brought it back to the shelter to show people. And in the beginning, you know, it wasn't the warmest welcome. I remember going the first night and getting told by the night manager, Mr. Spratt to go talk, introduce myself. And I thought I was going with a bunch of other classmates and I was the only one that showed up. And he said, all right, you want to talk to some people? Here you go. And he clicks off the television everyone was watching and it was cheers. And everyone just stood up and started swearing at me. Like I completely ruined their evening and I'm holding like a bag of stuff uh, that I was going to do some design research, like post-it notes and disposable cameras. But after that, that moment was, if you want to help us turn our television back on was the most direct feedback I got. And, you know, that was just the beginning of it, which was really interesting. You know, it was, people have been so burned by individuals coming in there and saying they're going to do all of this and never really doing anything. Um, so I felt very lucky to just get to spend time with people. All I said was, look, I'm broke. I live with my grandparents and I need your help passing this class, which is not super inspirational. Uh, but definitely got people to talk to me because I wasn't coming in there saying, I'm going to save you or help you. Like, who am I like to do any of that? Um, I just want to, I need your help. I have no idea what I'm doing. And it was really amazing how many people stepped forward and wanted to work on a creative project. It was, it was so exciting. I still have pictures that I look at all the time from those days. That is exciting. I bet you're inspired by those early day pictures. So the the project ended and the semester was over and, and you were finished with the assignment. And yet, obviously, that was just the beginning for you. What was it that caused you to continue and to make serving the homeless community your mission rather than simply getting a good grade on the project and then moving on, which again is sort of, I think what most college students do. I was going to say what I would have done, but I think it's what most college students do with term papers or semester long projects like that. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of my classmates, same thing, like it, and for me, I didn't realize at the time what I was doing was deeply personal. Like I didn't connect for me for a while, which is fascinating to think about, but it came from a place of trying to solve for what I went through, what my parents went through growing up. Like how, 
how can I create something? How can I, I deal with this? Um, and also at the same time, it was just amazing to engage with other people in this design process. Like up until then, most of my work was on the computer. Everything I had done over four years, if my computer had died, would have gone poof. And that was very hard. Uh, so for me, it was exciting to be out in the world, be like creating something and actually engaging with people in that process where it wasn't, I'm not good if you're, I, I can do it, but I'm really not the type of designer that can like sit in a room and like draw for weeks and weeks and come out with something brilliant. I love working with people. And I think some of the best ideas come from kind of working together with individuals. And so that was really exciting for me. And so when it became about like class project is over, even then I'm still going back to the shelter while the class project is going on class project is over, grades come out. I'm still going back. I have these relationships and I didn't even think about it being weird that I kept going. (laughs) I didn't even think about it. It was just something I was doing and people that I enjoyed being around and something that was exciting to me. And I tried to make it another class project for the next semester. I was like, well, I need to, I need to get money somehow to make coats because if we're going to, couple people had come up to me. Um, they were like, oh, I hear you're the coat lady. You're making these coats. Can I get one? I was like, oh, I, I guess it takes me like two weeks to make a prototype, uh, but we'll put your name on a list. And so it was exciting in that moment to realize a product that didn't just exist on the screen somewhere that like somebody coming up to you asking for this thing and wanting to be a part of it was huge. And so that's why I continued. And then what really made Empowerment Plan not about a product, but something much bigger was actually after that, that starting in that next semester, I was coming out of the shelter with my newest prototype number 20 something. And a woman started screaming at me. She had like, she was yelling at me. She's like, look, I don't need a coat. I need a job. What you're doing is pointless. And for me, I went up to her, I had a conversation for a minute. I was like, you know, I hear you. That totally makes sense. And I remember I was going out to a bar with a friend after that and sitting there and like, yeah, she's absolutely right. And so that's when I tried to figure out, I'm like, well, can I hire somebody? How do you even do that? What does that even look like? I'm, I've barely had a job myself. What <laughs> thought of this idea of hiring other people? And so because I was in college, it gave me the freedom to continue pushing it. So it still in my mind was a class project for a while um, until, until graduation came around and I realized this was what I was going to do. Yeah. And it's clear today that you've made the right decision. And I'm truly grateful for the difference that you make in the world. I can't help but wonder, though, what it was like when you were still in college and contemplating the direction of your life. So you talked about you had this freedom to to be able to um, move forward with that idea. But I know um, 
I'm sure then it was true when I was in school. I think it's true today that there's so much pressure and there are so many expectations regarding um, economic return on educational investment. And so certainly that had to have crossed your mind too, as you were thinking about all these possibilities for the coat and for employment and for what would eventually become um, empowerment plan. Tell us about that thought process and what ultimately caused you to forego other opportunities that probably would have been um, more lucrative financially, maybe a lot more lucrative financially in in order to start the empowerment plan? So one, I'm very lucky. I had financial aid and scholarship that allowed me to go to college without, without debt, really. So I want to preface that because I think a lot of people in my generation want to be able to do this but can't because they're kind of saddled with, you know, college loans and student loans that if I had to pay back, I think I would have, I couldn't make the decision I made had I been saddled with student loan debt. I don't think, I think it would have been much harder because for me, I didn't make an income for years. Um, initially, like the first year of, of empowerment plan did make anything, whatever donations we got in went to hiring people. And so I was able to, you know, live with my grandparents and do this. Um, but then when graduation rolled around, it was a very difficult decision. Um, because like I said, the reason the co- I picked the college I was going to, and p- I picked the major was that I wanted economic mobility and stability for myself. Um, and for my own family, it was something that I saw that other people had. They had they had homes, they were able to take vacations, they had they had this stability, they could buy whatever groceries they wanted to buy and not worry about whether it was covered by WIC or like there were so many things that I I wanted to have and I wanted to do. So for me, it was a very tough decision leading up to graduating from CCS. And I remember interviewing because we were all kind of like showing our portfolios and I was still doing empowerment plans, still moonlighting, doing this. And I remember interviewing at different companies because that's, you know, that's what our college want to see. We're, that's what we're, we're pushing to do, work at different firms. And everybody I interviewed was like, this project is amazing. <laughs> a couple of people that interviewed me and like, why do you want to come work with us? Like, this is way more exciting. Like, well, are you going to fund this like thing? And I remember sitting down with one of my grandparents' friends. So I didn't find this out until very recently, but my grandparents' friends uh, were told by my grandparents, please try to convince her out of this so she can learn <laughs> and like move out of the house eventually. See, that's that uh, pressure that I was talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah, there was the pressure. I didn't know that they had put that message out there that they my grandparents friend had tried to convince me out of it. Uh, but I remember sitting down with them and they said, look, you have a couple options. You can, you know, go work somewhere and come back and do this later, get more experience, go, go out and get the real world work experience, come back in 10 years or so, and then do it. And I remember going like, uh, that was option one. And I knew myself enough to say that that wasn't gonna happen. I like in 10 years, who knows who I will be at this point. And there was already so much momentum behind the coats, not a lot of money, but a lot of momentum. So I knew that that really wasn't feasible. The second option, she was like, well, 
you can sell it to another company. I'm like, what am I going to, what is there to sell? Like, there's a couple people making a code a week. Like, this is it. There's nothing to sell. And then the third option being, you can do this and commit to doing this and figure it out. But you really have to, like, you have to be all in. It's like, you can do this and try to make it work. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work but at least you tried. And so she was like, well, first you've got to graduate college. So at least, you know, worst case scenario, if it does fail and fall apart, at least you have your college degree. Um, and so that's the kind of, it took me months to make the choice. And once I did, I felt like, well, worst case scenario, I'm already broke. I already live with my grandparents. Um, I'm very like, I, I have family to lean on. I'm very lucky. Uh, I'll be okay. If this doesn't work, I will be okay. So it was worth trying. And, you know, it's been trying ever since, I guess, is the best way to describe it. What kind of external feedback were you getting around that? So you talked about your grandparents' friends. You came around to your option three and and really um, it, it took a long time to come to that decision. So obviously it was a very thoughtful one and, and mm-hmm. you knew the fallback. You knew what would happen if it didn't work. You saw yeah. hopefully at least some of the possibilities for it working. What kind of feedback were you getting from people around you, fellow students, maybe the school, other people who were pouring into you besides your grandparents at that time, just out of curiosity? It's interesting. Yeah. There's, um, there was the dean of CCS that I worked very hard to get a meeting with because I was like, well, I am writing this business plan. I've never written one before. Uh, and I need money to do this. And I don't know how to get money. So nowhere, no idea of where to get funding. So I thought, well, I give money to this entity of CCS every year. They should give me money to start this thing. Not at all how it works, but that's how I thought at the time. And so I met with so many CCS administrators, still a lot of them great friends of mine. Because they look through, they look through the business plan, and then they would let me like kind of go to the next level and next level. And so I finally got a meeting with the dean of CCS, who had been the design director for Patagonia of all people, and his feedback was the one that really shaped it and like allowed empower like empowerment plan wouldn't exist today without him taking kind of the risk he took. Um, and so he was like, look, we can't give you money, but I can maybe connect you with somebody that can help in more ways than just like this financial way. And he was the first person, he actually connected me with Carhartt. And he also basically, he's like, well, the other teachers at the time were like, this is cute. This is adorable. Good for you wanting to help people, but we want you to get back into consumer electronics. And so, uh, you know, he was like, well, I think they're wrong. And I think this is much bigger than that and can be much bigger than, than just this product. And so I will, I will teach you as an independent study and I'll help give you direction wherever I can. And it was a game changer. Uh, and I remember also talking to, you know, board members of other nonprofits that I had been working with and spending time with. And they're like, look, this is cute. Again, that very like, this is adorable, 
but you're never going to get a homeless person to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, let alone a coat was some of the feedback I got, or this is going to fail because you can't, you're not going to be able to hire anybody or, you know, this is going to be the problem. And it was amazing. The list of reasons why people said it was going to fail and not for the ways that I expected. I am like, I am a 21 year old that does no, I, I am not still in college. Um, and I'm trying to set up a sewing facility and I don't know how to sew myself and set up a nonprofit with like this much working experience. So it was, it was very interesting. So what's the lesson in that for high school and college students who might be listening to or watching the show and really for anybody else who might be at a, a crossroads in life, either they're facing a similar career decision or a, an important life decision like the one you had to make? So my advice to high school, college, or even anybody, it doesn't matter the age, kind of at the precipice of that kind of decision, you know, for me, like I said, I, I like to think about the worst case scenario. For, for me, it was, okay, well, I will still be broke and I'll still be living with my grandparents if I take this, this risk. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it's just, that's a very tough decision for people to make because there's a lot more at stake if you have kids and a mortgage and it makes it very hard, damn near impossible to do something like that. Um, I think what's a gift of like being a student um, or a high school or college, you have this ability to take those risks and have people around you that you can support, that can support you, but also you can learn from. And so for me, it's about taking the risks of the first couple steps. It's not about looking at this whole thing of, I want to save the world or I want to end homelessness. That's, that's a very big thing to try to take a bite out of, or try to take, even make an impact on even a small dent. And so I know a lot of people that don't start something for fear of not being able to do the big, big thing. They'd be like, why, why do it if I can't, or I'm never going to be able to achieve that, or I'm never going to get the amount of money, or I'm never going to be able to do this big, big thing. When I started, it was about impacting the 10 people I had gotten to know and then 12 people. And then it became like 14 people. And, and it was about this, this small thing right around the corner from where I lived that was about impacting that small number of people and seeing if it worked. Doing a pilot to me is the biggest thing ever. I love doing that even now at work. We do pilots of stuff all the time. And it's a way to see okay, can I do this? Do I feel comfortable doing this? And you also may realize, oh my God, I don't, I personally don't want to be doing this. So I recommend not looking at this massive, big project, but taking it down to a very bite-sized thing and say, okay, how can I do 10 of this or make this one event or make this one thing and see if it's good. See if it works. Let me work out the kinks. Um, and then take the next step. Because I didn't even know what the steps would be after the first 10 coats. I had no clue what they were. It was like one thing at a time. And I realized after making the first 10 coats, it was like, okay, well, how am I going to hire people? Okay, then do I need insurance? And the, every step of the way, the list would get a little longer. But it was so much easier than had I known all of it in the beginning and was presented with this massive list of things. I don't think I would have done this. 
I think I would have been terrified or daunted by the big magnitude of it. Veronica, you you had mentioned when you first showed up at the shelter, and I, I was kind of smiling because I, I've been in that setting, and, and so I know exactly how that must have felt, the intimidation, and especially when you were at the front of the room and they turned off the television, which is very important to people in the shelter to be able to, to watch a television show. But obviously, over time, you've developed relationships and, and rapport with the clients that you serve. Um, tell us about that now, the, the, how the relationship with um, your, your constituency, your clients changed over time. How, how did you win them over? And, and maybe you haven't even done that completely yet with everybody, but you've obviously had um, success on some level with that. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I think that's a, it's a good question. I think it applies to like anybody that wants to, to get into this kind of impact work or even wants to go volunteer in a shelter, like probably like you did and, and engage with people of, you know, for me, it was actually similar backgrounds. It was like, for me, it was like spending time with members of my own family and I was way more comfortable with it than a lot of my other classmates or anybody else. And so that's how I kind of fell in love with it. But for me, I think it's all about kind of asking questions, the humility, and then also being kind of just being open to not knowing. I think a lot of people go into those situations, especially with like giving back and they're like, well, I know what you need. I, I, I'm not in this situation. You are obviously you've done something wrong and I've done something right. So therefore, like there is that idea of kind of otherness when you go into these situations and it's our bias, like it's an unconscious bias that we have. And I think when, when you go into a shelter or spending time with somebody or same, like with the team that I work with now, it's about building trust. It's about building rapport like you would with any person in any company, but also understanding that you don't know the answers and like being open and asking questions, asking how people are doing, what their day was like, what their weekend was like, talking about their kids. It's, there's all these same, these same passions. So it's just finding that mutual path, whether it's like, oh, you both like iced lattes from Starbucks. Who knew? Like, you don't know what those amazing similarities. And I think it's that humanity piece that I've, I've seen, sadly, when it comes to doing charitable work, people, people lose sight that this is just like another person that they're talking to rather than this other person that they have to serve or give something to. And, um, I've seen it, you know, when I was in NSO, there was a sandwich drive-by where a group was in charge of handing out food around NSO. And that area had a really kind of terrible reputation as a very dangerous part of the city. And so the group packed with bologna sandwiches is in a white van they roll up to the building. They Instead of stopping, they slow down to a crawl. All the windows get rolled down and people start tossing sandwiches out the window at people. And then they speed off. And I always wonder, do the people in the car end up patting themselves on the back and saying, well, 
People were hungry and we fed them. And if you look at this work and serving others and all of that as a math equation, people, hungry, sandwiches, there's a lot that can get lost. And so it's about understanding, having the empathy, the humanity piece, and also just constantly being open to like being wrong and to like finding similarities and asking those questions and just getting to know people. And I think that curiosity too is something that like I was shocked by how shocked others were in the shelter that I was curious about their like life and family and kids and all that. Like they hadn't been asked about like, Hey, how are your kids doing? What are they like? Oh, have they seen this new movie on like all of those things just, you know, treat you like you would your friend or family member or any other person. Yeah. Being human goes a long way, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. And I don't even think people think that's, <laughs> I think, a lot of places don't do that well, no matter who they're serving. You're very right about that. Veronica, I, I love the coat, um, not just because of the practicality of keeping people warm when it's freezing cold outside. I mean, that would be enough, but also because you've created something that gives them pride. And you talked about this a little bit earlier when I think about what I see people on the street dressed in. They're usually wearing, uh, covered with, and protected by whatever's available to them. You mentioned tarps, things like trash bags, cardboard, and odd clothing that I'm sure, especially in the winter, doesn't even begin to um, keep them warm. But at some point, you realize that there is an opportunity to make a much larger societal impact that wasn't just about providing coats. What triggered that transition? And you mentioned this earlier. What triggered the transition from manufacturing sleeping bag coats for those in need to also providing employment and job readiness training and support? Because those are two very different things. So I can totally see a um, even a student from CCS, a a product designer, an industrial designer, um, making a product. But that's very different than um, training and employment and life skills and and manufacturing skills and all of those other things that weren't really your your background or your skill set necessarily. How did you make that leap? So like I said, there was that, you know, the one woman that one day kind of saying, look, I I don't need a coat. I need a, I need a job. What you're doing isn't what's going to help me basically. And so talking to her and then kind of trying to digest what it's like to hire people. That was a big thing. And and realizing, you know, she's right on its own. The coat is a band-aid. And what has a kind of a systemic impact is hiring the people that would need it in the first place. So wrapping kind of my head around that, um, that was, it became complicated. And that for me, was like really exciting, you know, the kind of the puzzle of how, how can I impact the people that would need the code, but hopefully so that they never have to use the code, which is a very interesting thing as a product designer of how do I make my product obsolete, even just for a few people or unnecessary for even this few people. And so then I was able to partner with another amazing shelter uh, and work kind of as 
they were my fiduciary. So I was like fiscally sponsored by them because I really had no idea how nonprofits ran or how to do any of that. So it was underneath their umbrella. It was a project underneath their programming. And that allowed me to see a lot of what it would take to actually run a nonprofit and what it, what it would entail, which was amazing. So highly recommend that for anybody that is looking to go down that route, filing one piece of paper. It's pretty amazing. And what I was able to do while I was there was actually hire the first few people from their shelter and seeing what they accomplished without any like other things than just a paycheck from, from me the things that they were able to do, they were moving out of the shelter, they were buying a car, they were getting their kids enrolled in these different schools and after like incredible programs and all these things. And it was amazing to see that. So that's when I realized I'm like, okay, obviously the check is part of that. And like income, immediate income is so important, but also just being flexible for people so that like, oh, if they had to go to an appointment to get their driver's license back, or so they had to go, you know, deal with getting childcare or to try to figure out a new place to live outside of the shelter. A lot of jobs do not have the tolerance for that. They're like, look, if you're not here at work, you're fired. And so even me just being that kind of flexibility saying, no, of course, like you have to go deal with that. And that became part of our core principles, like understanding that the income is part of it, but you have to look at the whole person and the whole person requires a lot of complex things kind of coming in at once. And then slowly based on the people that were employed, be like, okay, one person wanted to go back and get their GED. And so me and my team were like Googling, we're like, okay, so do we teach GED classes? Should we try to do that? Like, I don't know anything about the GED. I don't think I could pass the GED. And we're looking at each other like, well, well, there's got to be a place that we could send somebody. It's like, oh, there's one across town at 9 p.m. Okay, well, how is this person going to get there at 9 p.m. when they take the bus and they have three kids? Where are their kids going to go? And so it was this process of understanding that the system is really broken and really scattered. And a lot of these nonprofit organizations it's just like, we're kind of like all in like these different silos and you have to, you have to bounce from place to place, to place, to place, to place, to get to stability even. And so how can we prevent that? Like crazy, like navigating the entire city of Detroit plus some just to get some of those basic needs met. How can we bring those things on site? So that's when it began to evolve is like listening to each person along the way and be like, oh yeah, let's help you figure out how to get your GED. Okay, we're gonna partner with this other nonprofit that's really good at doing GED prep. And we'll work with them because we don't know anything about the GED. And so that what that allowed us to do is now we have a network of like other providers and other partners, other organizations that are really good at what they are good at. And they get to be good at that. And then we get to be good at the employment piece and we get to provide like kind of a network of care around somebody. I love your attitude toward the whole thing. And obviously you're making a huge difference, but I, I don't, think I have to tell you how big the problems are that you're trying to address. And so I thought about that um, as I approach the show. You're fighting systemic and intergenerational poverty, 
uh, a rise in mental health and substance abuse issues and record levels of domestic violence, all while you're trying to manufacture coats and employ people and train people. Um, certainly any positive impact that you can make. And, and you talked about the small steps to reduce homeless and poverty and, and of course, to bring dignity to those affected. I think that's one of the main things is certainly worth doing. And, but I, I have to be honest, the challenge to me like seems almost insurmountable. And I'm sure at times it does to you too. You have capacity constraints on the number of coats you can produce, the number of people that you can employ and train. How do you, and again, I, I love your attitude around it. And so how do you stay driven and focused and inspired on the solution, even in the midst of um, some challenges that are, are probably getting worse and, and that certainly aren't even within your control? It's an easy thing to get disheartened by, like, and also just kind of the state of the world right now. For a lot of people, it feels very helpless and hopeless. Um, and that idea of these things being kind of broken beyond us fixing them. But for me, I have to look at it in the way that I don't think there is a silver bullet or a cream that fixes everything. And so what you have to, from my personal belief is that there is things in each community the community action, the grassroots things, those have very profound and deep impact uh, on, on the area that they're located in. And what works in Detroit may not work even in Pontiac, let alone LA or New York. And so understanding that while the problem, again, it's based on what you're trying to bite off, the problem that you're trying to make an impact on. And, you know, had... I known when I started that we were going to impact like 80,000 people around the globe with the coats, I wouldn't have believed you. That's a, that's a astronomical number to me. And then hundreds of people we've employed and, and all of that. So I think to keep that hope is seeing that like direct impact and seeing that one person to be able to impact positively the trajectory of one person is huge. Sure. In my mind, and I think you cannot, and there's been there's these great Harvard case studies that have come out where it's like, we can't just sit around and wait for the one big solution that's going to fix it all. We have to do as like individuals and small groups and as a person, the little things that we can know that will impact kind of our scope. Because if enough people do that, then that's when the big change happens. But I think we've gotten into this place where we're waiting for that one, like that, that person that's going to come in and make the big, big change and fix all the big, big problems. And so my attitude and my thought is, well, a lot of people can make a lot of impact. And that's in very small ways. Are there things that can be done on a macro level? to improve the state of homelessness and poverty? Or do you really think that in order for transformation to occur, it has to occur at the grassroots level? I don't think it has to occur. I think it, it's both. I think it all plays a role. I think I don't want to discount grassroots. I think people, that's when people get overwhelmed. They're like, oh, I can't do anything because 
the problem is too big. Well, it's like if you can make a change here and then it can start to have a ripple effect. And that's what I've seen with Empowerment Plan is there's a lot of people that want to create other empowerment plans, which is interesting. They have now copied the model. They now want the model in their cities. Other businesses are now hiring people from shelters and from housing programs. And I think that's exciting to see because it's just like proof of concept. And then you see all these other organizations pick up. What I've even seen locally is that there are like even companies, whether it's a small bakery or business, hiring somebody and doing more training and more support than they normally would have, but then they get a very incredible employee out of it. Or, you know, Henry Ford Health Systems, we've partnered with them. They they do a lot of interesting and amazing like hiring and recruiting. And I think now more than ever in this kind of after the pandemic, now endemic COVID situation, a lot of employers are looking at things differently. They're looking at, okay, well, maybe this person doesn't have to have a four-year college degree. Maybe we can train them. And so that allows for a lot more people to get that opportunity, to get that call, to get that chance to, to get that mobility. And so that's those are some of the things that I see even on a, on a macro level that can that can have very powerful ripple effects, and that's just from like the employment space. But there's a, there's a lot there. Sure. Where is your focus right now? So you have an opportunity to make more coats. You have an opportunity to employ more people. You talked about other people, other communities taking the idea and running with it. So mm-hmm. there are scale opportunities. What are you focused on right now? I think our biggest thing right now is systematizing a lot. So we're growing exponentially. We've just hired like 20 people over the last few months and, and we're growing quite a bit. And for me, that's, you know, it's risky with a culture like ours of like very close, very tight knit. We want to make sure we're not growing too quickly that we lose that kind of magic thing that we're doing and people don't get lost in the shuffle. And that's very important. So for, for me, as we're growing to try to reach the demand for our employment, opportunities and for the coats um, is making sure that we're capturing and kind of packaging up all the work that we do and making sure that it is a process, a ritual, a habit that we have in place as part of like the culture of empowerment plan. So that's, that's a big thing. Um, And then on top of that is, is really scaling and looking at, you know, for us potential government funding, because that's how nonprofits really grow. You can't just traditional philanthropy can only get you so far for so long. Um, and once you kind of hit a certain age or a certain size that needs to come into play and then looking at how we scale. So we are in high demand, like what would another city look like? What would that be? And where do we go first and why? So those are some of the big things that we're focused on right now. We're building the strategic plan for the next couple of years right now. You have lots of exciting opportunities. Yeah, it's it's more of like, what are we not doing? Versus <laughs> what are we doing? And it's it's even tougher to say like, nope, we're not we're not. The boundary systems are really important. Veronica, I know there are people listening to the show or watching it on our YouTube channel whose hearts are broken for the clients you serve. What can people as individuals do to help? 
So there's a lot of ways to to give and to give back, whether it's to us or even other organizations. You know, we, you know, at Empowerment Plan, we rely very heavily on our donors and partners so they can go to empowermentplan.org. And we've seen an, you know, an uptick in a lot of needs, like transportation needs have gone through the roof. We've seen a lot of domestic violence, so mental health wraparound services, and and all of those things are so important. So there are ways for people to get involved in, in a different, like at a couple different opportunities, even with Empowerment Plans site. And then just, you know, for us, we, you know, we also run a food pantry and and this idea of like being able to give, you know, we get a lot of food from like Focus Hope and Gleaners. And so there's a lot of things that even us as individuals, which are sitting at home right now, kind of looking at your kitchen, like, oh, what are the things that can I give some food or can I give some business casual clothes away that like I wore before, before the pandemic, but I'm not going to wear now, uh, you know, that can build, that can do a lot for a lot of people. So there, there are many different ways to get involved. I appreciate you sharing that. Can you share a story about a specific person you've impacted along the way to help personalize this for us? Someone you think of whenever you need a reminder of how important the work is that you're doing? What's awesome with my job is there's always new people getting added to the list. So there, it's like, it's very, it's very cool. So I'll go for like one of the first stories that I think about. Um, the one that like really solidified for me, oh, this is, this is bigger than a class project. Okay, wait, this is actually, this is real. Um, so one of the first five people I ever hired and we're in this like tiny incubator in Corktown and she had been sleeping in her car with her six-year-old son at the time and then had finally gotten into a shelter and then we hired her and it was just, she had never had, um, kind of like a traditional employment opportunity before. She had been in kind of survival sex work for a very long time. And this was, this was very different. And this was also something outside of like what she had grown up with and all of these things. And so she was with us for about two years. She was also one of the most talented seamstresses ever. So fast. Who could like sew circles around anybody within like a few weeks and like so young and she had this, you know, she had a saying, she had a catchphrase. She was just like this, this very bright, bubbly, fun light in the, in our office. And so she, after a few years actually moved out, she was like one of the first few people to like move on into another job. And she started working for a title company. So she now works making mortgages, which is amazing to think about her journey. And then she surprised us one day when the company was doing this, the new company she was working for did a volunteer day with Empowerment Plan. She didn't tell anybody and she just showed up in the new company's swag and just like everyone's screaming and excited. Um, And she's still there. And this was seven years ago. And so it's like, it's those stories that like still makes me really like brings me a lot of joy just to think about her and like, you know, just all of those things. And, you know, the, that impact of that one person, but also the family, like how her son is doing and all of these things. That's, that's for me, the real one. So that gives you hope. Oh yeah. That's, I, I could tell you dozens of other stories like that. They're all unique. Everyone's story is very different, but you know, that's just the first one that came to mind. 
Yeah, I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that, Veronica. And thanks so much for being on the show. It's been great getting to know you, learning about the empowerment plan. And I really, truly um, appreciate the difference that you make in the world. Thanks for being on the show. And um, hopefully we can talk again soon. Thank you for having me. Loved it. Me too. And to our listeners and viewers, thanks for tuning into Life Excellence. Please support the show by subscribing, sharing it with others, posting about today's show with Veronica Scott on social media, and leaving a rating and review. You can also learn more about me at brianbardis.com. Until next time, dream big dreams and make each day your masterpiece. Mm-hmm.